Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. It's time for the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is the voice of the working class, Rick Smith. And welcome, brothers, sisters, working class heroes. This is the Rick Smith Show. Thanks so much for being here today on the big program. Lots to get to, lots to talk about. Super Bowl coming up. Super Bowl going to come up very soon. And I got to tell you, I'm not really caring for either team. Um, yeah, I'm not a 49ers fan because the 49ers basically just drilled the Broncos back in the 80s in, in one of the Super Bowls. Not a Kansas City Chiefs fan because, well, they drilled my my team the Broncos pretty regularly um but this Super Bowl unlike others has gotten kind of stupid this whole thing about Taylor Swift and the right-wing conspiracies my favorite again being the CIA created her to be a pop star so that she could have millions of fans around the world and that she would endorse Joe Biden and then uh, he would be president again (laughs) And what's interesting to me, and then I said this earlier in the week, what's interesting to me is uh, the same people who are pitching this conspiracy theory, like a lot of these conspiracy theories, think our government is so, so capable of of pulling off these Rube Goldberg intricate schemes, but yet being inept and incompetent at the same time. It's quite, it's quite remarkable. It's quite amazing to me. But I'll tell you, I am I am rooting for the the Chiefs because I think Taylor Swift's a good, decent person. Not a huge fan of her music. Don't really know. Couldn't tell you one song. But in looking at her, someone who uh, decent. The fact that she treats her employees well. The fact that she treats her her fans well. Um, yeah, I, I wish more, wish we had more more Taylor Swifts. More people who cared about others. More people who were who were just decent human beings. Kind of like that about her. And uh, so with that said, uh, I, I think I have to vote for the Chiefs. I have to root for the Chiefs because it's going to really make the the people who I already thought left. You know, I thought when when Kaepernick did the kneeling thing that all these, these snowflakes left. I thought they had gone somewhere else, evidently still hanging around. Uh, personally, I wanted to see the Lions and the Bills play. Uh, that would have been a great a great Super Bowl for me. Underdogs, I like seeing teams that you know that you know, struggle that, you know, that haven't had great success in the past. I would have loved to have seen that game, uh, but here we are. Uh, it's it's going to be the the Chiefs and the 49ers. Uh, my wife will obviously be watching the commercials. Uh, now the reason I bring this up is again I was hoping for the Bills uh, to be in the playoffs. I was hoping for the Lions. I would have rooted for the Lions. Uh, you know, because they had never been there before. Great storylines. I love that stuff. But the reason I bring this up is uh, the Buffalo Bills are getting a new stadium. And I'll tell you, I like the old one. 
Uh, but then again, I'm I'm partial to the old stadiums. I loved Cleveland Municipal Stadium. It broke my heart when they tore it down and drug it into the lake. But you know, they're building another one in Buffalo, uh, a new state of the art, you know, new new facility. Uh, and and the, what caught my attention is the fact that 60%, this is what the state of New York is saying, 60% of the steel that's going to be in this stadium is going to be sourced from New York. Now, you go, but but Rick, shouldn't it be you know kind of 100% because you're a domestic consumption, domestic production guy? Yeah, it should be. Because it's interesting, the new stadium is going to be about six miles from where the old Bethlehem Steel Complex used to be that was once the, you know, the, the powerhouse in the region of steelmaking. Uh, we used to be the, the world's largest steel producer. None of us remember that, obviously, but we used to be. And we used to, we used to produce lots of this stuff. Whole bunch of reasons: bad free trade agreements, terrible you know mismanagement of these companies. You know, go down the list. Uh, we've we've lost that. We're not. I think we're fourth in the world now, behind China, who produces more than half of the world's steel. Uh, and 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 Japan and, and I think I think Germany, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but I'm I'm looking at this and I'm going. You know, this this is a moment to go look. This is a good thing. Buy American, domestic production, domestic consumption. This is what I've been preaching about for the longest time. The reverberation effect of these jobs, not just in building the stadium, but all of the inputs to it, that's how you grow an economy. That's how you grow it from the bottom up. That's how you give people dignity, respect, jobs, security, you know, good wages, benefits, all of this stuff. And, and good on the folks in, in Buffalo for doing this because it would be easy to go, no, no, we're going to go get that cheap stuff. We're going to stay addicted to the cheap stuff that, you know, who knows how long it lasts. Uh, but for me on this day, you know, you, you come back to the reality that because of Joe Biden. And yeah, because of Joe Biden, we actually have a policy. Now, for my, my red hat folks, no, no, it was Donald Trump who pointed this out. Yeah, I give him credit. Credit where credit is due. Trump did have his, his thumb on the pulse. Uh, the fact that people are upset that we don't didn't have a manufacturing policy, didn't have um, you know a way forward. Uh, Trump did raise the issue, something that I had been talking about on on my little program for almost two decades. So he wasn't Magellan; he wasn't discovering new lands. He was simply saying what people wanted to hear, and that is, we're going to reshore manufacturing. We're going to build stuff in America again. We're going to have pride in what we build. Communities are going to be proud of the products that they build. And oh, by the way, when we need a new stadium, um, maybe, maybe, maybe we use domestic steel. Now, the great thing about this, 60% of it's going to be uh, produced in New York. They're saying 100% of it. And this, this blows my mind. 100% of it made in the U.S. That, uh, to steal a Joe Bidenism, kind of a big freaking deal and it's something that we should all be wanting and, and understanding demanding this is why again i come back to we're in a moment uh this election is going to be about a lot of things uh, abortions top of the list but but jobs in manufacturing jobs and and producing the idea of made in america the idea that you know what we can we can have an economy that benefits working people 
That's what Biden has done. Uh, one thing, you know, Trump, you know, a lot of PR, a lot of, lot of, a lot of public stunts, a lot of you know, infrastructure weeks, a uh, lot, lot of, lot of, hey, look at me. But Biden just shows up and does the job. The Democrats have passed legislation that's moving us in the right direction, and that should be rewarded. Just my view. It's one of those things that we should go. Yeah, that's that's actually a pretty good thing. Something we should we should be demanding more of, not less of. But I want to hear your thoughts. Is it a big deal that this one point seven billion dollar stadium uh, that the Bills are going to be playing in, that the steel in it is is, is American made, and that as much as they can source domestically, they do. Does that make a is that does that make it a big deal to you? It does to me. Rick at the RickSmithShow.com. We are AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees. We represent 700,000 federal and D.C. government workers who are the vital threads of the fabric of American life. We support our nation's military. We take care of our nation's veterans. We protect our nation's borders. We respond to our nation's crises and natural disasters. We provide services to our nation's seniors. The American Federation of Government Employees. We work for America. We are AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees. We represent 700,000 federal and D.C. government workers who are the vital threads of the fabric of American life. We support our nation's military. We take care of our nation's veterans. We protect our nation's borders. We respond to our nation's crises and natural disasters. We provide services to our nation's seniors. The American Federation of Government Employees. We work for America. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So, as you know, we've been talking about the need for industrial policy, manufacturing jobs, recreating communities that build things. And, um, you know, I think the administration has been doing a very good job of that thus far. I don't know that they've done a great job of, of getting out and selling it as much as I would like. Uh, and that's why my next guest has written a piece over at Re- Real Clear Politics that caught my attention, uh, saying Biden's campaign faces a manufacturing disconnect, where he says, look, you know, whoever the presidential candidate who comes out and makes the case, the most ar- articulate, most effective case for Made in America, for making things right here at home, that's going to move voters, that's going to resonate with voters. And his his prescription is, Biden's got to get out there and evangelize, got to spread the good word and say, look, look what I have done. To me, that that that's the way forward. And that's why I've asked our good friend Scott Paul to come share some thoughts. He's the president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, AmericanManufacturing.org, the website. Scott, thanks for taking time for us. Hey, Rick, great to be with you. So Joe Biden's got to get out and evangelize, got to spread the good word. Yeah, look, I think he does. And this is part of the, the challenges because, I mean, there's a lot of good to say about what's happening with the economy today and in particular with a an aspect of the economy that's important to a lot of voters in states like pennsylvania and michigan and wisconsin you know these are going to be very key states you know leading up to november but i think the issue is and look i'm going to admit this is tough first of all like when you're in the white house there's always a thousand different things going on but if you're keeping your eyes on the prize a little bit, you know, y- there is no amount of 
talking about what you've done for Made in America, for American manufacturing, for middle-class jobs uh, that is gonna bore people, right? This is what, th this is what they wanna hear. These are the kitchen table issues they wanna talk about. And, and ex being able to express that in a tangible way by going to a factory uh, that's been uh, this under construction in a community is a way to do that. And the good news for Joe Biden is that there are a ton of factories that are under construction. We know that from the data. In fact, there's never been more. So it's a it's a really good time to get out and do this. But you, you got to do it every day in addition to doing all the other things you need to do uh, as president of the United States. But this is going to appeal to a lot of voters who care about working class issues, who care about the future of our economy, all of those issues, Rick. Yeah, and as you point out in your article, look, I mean, this is a this is a lot of manufacturing being built up all at once and and quickly, and, and it hasn't really filtered into our, our thoughts yet. I mean, you know, from our infrastructure being built, as you pointed out, semiconductor fabrication, clean energy, broadband, uh, you know, being expanded, you know, the EV stuff, you know, solar panel, all kinds of stuff that's that's being done. And, and the, here's my problem, though. Um, when I look at the two guys, I look at Trump and I look at Biden. Trump is he's, he's a used car salesman, man. He can sell a, a ketchup popsicle to a wo woman wearing white gloves in the desert. Uh, <laughs> not going to do much. And then we saw that yeah. during his four years. Every week was infrastructure week. Never had an infrastructure thing. He, no plant was ever going to close. We saw a bunch of plant closers. Um, he, he's good on the sale. Uh, Biden, yeah. uh, you know, I want him to evangelize, but the doing for me is more important than the, than the talking about it. Uh, yeah. So how do we, how do we, how do we mix this? Yeah. And I, I, you're, you're, I think you nailed it because it is so much easier just to go out there and talk, uh, like Trump does and say, I want to do a 10% tariff or a 60% tariff or whatever it is, or, or say buy American, or I'm going to take on China. And rhetorically, look, I'm going to acknowledge he's very good at that, right? I mean, he, you know, he gets out there and talks about it. It's much different when you're doing something. And I think this, this is the issue is that, I mean, there are now in a lot of states, including a lot of these electorally significant states, you know, opportunities for people who want good jobs uh, in, in these new factories. And you know, what that is going to do, and I think this is the thing, it's like, you know, if you get a manufacturing job as opposed to like landing a job at the dollar store, the difference that's going to make for your life or for your family or for a community is just, you know, exponential. And it's, it's going to be so helpful. And then, you know, and, and then understanding that one of the reasons why that factory is being built is because there's an infrastructure bill or, there's a clean energy manufacturing incentive, or uh, there's been resources to help bring semiconductor manufacturing back in droves to the United States. And it's kind of, it's those kinds of conversations that Biden, the administration is gonna need to do in, in those key states, because there are a lot of places he could go do and uh, where he could go and do this very thing um, and one of the things I mentioned in the piece is that he would run out of time before he ran out of places to go that have been positively impacted 
by this industrial policy effort. No, no, and that's that's the key part of this. Uh, and look, you know, one of the things I agreed with Trump on was the you know the need for industrial policy, the need to rebuild the country, rebuild our manufacturing process. I was right there, and I was like, okay, let's let's do something. Just nothing ever got done. Uh, yeah. But so you know, the the question then becomes, you know, because it's it, what you're talking about is difficult stuff. It's 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 a level of analysis. It's a level of understanding that things just don't happen. Uh, there's no benevolent dictator who comes in and bestows manufacturing jobs. There's actually some thought, some work, some policy, some smart investment that goes into all of this. So mm -hmm. you know, in this evangelical, this 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 new evangelical Joe Biden. You know, how, how do you see this playing out? I, I like my idea of 20 foot statues and, you know, finger pointing and that stuff. But, you know, how, how do we yeah. get out here and actually do that work? Yeah, I shouldn't be shy about that because there's there's a lot of people. This is the interesting thing to me. There's a lot of people who, even though they voted against it or they're philosophically opposed to it, are going to show up for that ribbon cutting and take credit for that factory when they probably had very little to do with it. But the reason it's there is because there was a loan guarantee or there was a, a preference for that type of product if it was made in America, or that the company knew there was going to be a market for this because there's been this trillion dollar investment made uh, by this administration. And so that that's a very tangible reason why that factory is locating there. And I, I think repeating that and drawing that contrast is important. And the other difference that he can say is like, look, there are more of these factory jobs now on my watch than there ever were under Donald Trump or Barack Obama. You know, I've, you know, I've got us back up to a level that we haven't seen for a long time in, in manufacturing and the future is looking brighter. Uh, and, and there's, boy, there hasn't been a moment like this. I know you've been following these issues for a long time, for decades, and there hasn't been a moment like this. And so it is truly very special, and in particular for those communities that might have felt kind of hollowed out yeah. uh, and, and left out in, in the past. And, and the, just the, the, the difference is that Trump did talk about it. And as, as you said, you know, he did some stuff. He did tariffs but that's only one piece of this, you know, like you need the tariffs, you need the investment, you need the, the Buy America, you need to put all of that together to actually bring those jobs back. And, and that's something this administration has been able to do. Now, you brought up the tariffs, uh, you know, just recently, uh, Trump has come out, officially come out now and said, you know, he's, he's looking at a 60 percent tariff on Chinese goods. Um you know, for me, okay, you can put as much tariff as you want on. If you're not making it at home, it just means the prices are, are actually going to go up. And for me, the idea of having some competition, something my conservative friends used to believe in, uh, that's that's what I want. I want to be able to go into the shelf and go, I'm, I want to buy that product made in the U.S. I want to be able yeah. to buy that wrench or that auto part or, or whatever it is that was made here that I know is going to be a quality product. And I'll pay maybe a couple pennies extra for it. But, you know... I want to have that option. Sadly, right now, we really don't have those choices. Yeah. And I think that's part of it is that, you know, when you say I'm going to do the 60 percent tariff, it sounds like it is a an elixir to both punish China and to bring ba jobs back to the United States. And so the truth is, yes, there will be some punishment of China here. 
because there's uh, prohib in particular, if that tariff makes the good cost prohibitive and not competitive, either people aren't going to buy it or the retail stores aren't going to source it from China anymore. So that will have an impact. But the question is, is that going to come back to the United States? And the answer is not automatic. The, you know, no, it takes more than a 60% or any level of tariff to make that happen. It actually takes that industrial policy. You know, you need to get workers engaged in these careers. You need to build that capacity back up. There is a public investment uh, component to all of this. Uh, otherwise, it'll just be dispersed. And instead of coming from China, it'll be coming from India and from Malaysia and from Indonesia and from Vietnam and from Cambodia and from Mexico uh, instead of China. And you still haven't solved the manufacturing jobs issues in the United States. But with that industrial policy, with that trillion dollar investment and in the Buy America program and all of that, then yes, you are going to see some of that work come back to the United States. And that's the difference. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, look, you, with China, you're going to play whack-a-mole. I mean, you know, I was just reading an article recently on the, the fact that because of the Uyghur Forced Labor Pre Prevention Act, um, you know, China's moving, you know, some of their goods through India to get here uh, or yeah. through other countries, a backdoor means to get into this country while violating the law. Uh, and it, it is, it's just a game of whack-a-mole, but you've got to stay persistent. You've got to stay diligent. And also you've got to have domestic production for domestic consumption to give people the option to be able to, to, to buy things that are made in their backyards. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and look, we are starting down this path on some goods, and, and we will see more semiconductors made in the United States. That's definitely going to happen. Um, we should see, for people who want to buy them, more American-made electric vehicles coming online and the whole infrastructure that goes into that. Uh, for Americans who want a diverse source of energy, you know, more, uh, more opportunities for uh, installing American-made solar panels and for generating power from uh, American-made wind turbines. All of that is, 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 is in process right now. But let me give you a big example of where we aren't there yet. That's something like a smartphone. I mean, there are you know billions of smartphones in the world right now. We make zero. zero. We make none. We don't make a single smartphone. And we don't have the ecosystem to do it right now. But if you were able to, with industrial policy, again, kind of help to jumpstart that, uh, I mean, that would be pretty extraordinary to see. And, and we'd have much more of our future in our own hands rather than having it depend on some really sketchy supply chain uh, and production system that all those companies have stood up in China uh, to try to get this done. And so... We're at the very tip of the iceberg, uh, right, right here. But there's a we need to move forward and not bring the stuff back, and that's unfortunately what too many people want to do. It's like, yeah, we'll put on tariffs, but we're also going to take away the money for doing all this industrial policy, and we'll give corporations uh, more regulatory flexibility, um, which may mean less safe workplaces uh, and and less safety for consumers and uh, fewer protections for workers. Um, and so that's not, and, and lower tax rates for corporations. And we've tried this, Rick, we've yeah. tried this. We know what happens. It's like, 
they pocket the money, we still don't get the jobs. So, yeah, but, but the argument I always get back when we when I talk about that is, we just haven't done it enough, Scott. We need to give more tax cuts. We need to deregulate more. We need to go further, uh, you know, because we just haven't. Yeah. We, we're not there yet. We're, we're close. We're almost there, but not quite. So we just need to keep doing the same bit of insanity, and then maybe, maybe something will trickle down on us. Yeah, man, I tell you, every iteration of this they've tried, it's basically the result is the same. All right. So that's when you know you need a new model. And it is basically like what happens? Yeah, you might juice the stock market that in fact, that could very well happen. Shareholders are going to love this stuff. The corporations are going to be great, but you don't get the jobs back. I mean, if this was, you know, we would have gained manufacturing jobs during the Reagan years, we would have gained manufacturing jobs during the Bush years, we would have gained manufacturing jobs during the Trump years, if any of this stuff works. But guess what? It didn't. No. And we didn't. And we lost manufacturing jobs in the Trump years, in the Bush years, and in the Reagan years. So last question, last line of questioning I've got for you, because, you know, every time I talk about this, I get hit by with people going, well, you're talking about using taxpayer money to invest in these companies and prop them up and create these industries. Uh, you know, the invisible hand should be doing this stuff, Scott. Uh, you know, why isn't corporate America doing this? You know, why should, why do we have to do this? And and I got to be honest, it's it's an, it's an honest question. You know, it's 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 a real question that I think needs to be somewhat addressed. But here's the thing, and this is where I'm going to real quick, you know, uh, throw my my thoughts in. The fact that Biden is doing it the way he's doing it, I think is important because he's talking about jobs and union jobs that have good wages and benefits and, and a future as opposed to the kind of mick job automation robotic things that could possibly come so for me investing in things that's going to benefit makes a little bit of sense but i'm curious what your thought is yeah i mean it's it's about that philosophy and if you think the invisible hand and the market has worked perfectly then yeah the industrial policy is not going to be for you but if you look around in the real world and see what's happened it's like China's invested so much money and they own their own companies. I mean, this is not what we're doing, by the way. These are all private companies, but we're helping to offset the cost of capital, uh, which is which is more expensive in the United States. And manufacturing is a bit of a longer bet. I mean, it's easy to do a software app or something, and then the next day you have a million followers and you're making your money already. You can't do that with a factory. It takes, you know, it takes hammers and nails and structural steel, and it takes workers and it takes capital investment and take inputs, and then you got to find the customers. And so it takes some time and, and to help kind of smooth that process out, you do need that, you know, that public guarantee, whether it's uh, creating a market or having the procurement space, uh, or having a, a consumer tax incentive, or a loan guarantee, or offsetting that capital investment. You do need some of these tools to be able to play the game, because you're not playing against the invisible hand. You're talking about a big, massive clenched fist, clenched fist which has controlled this for the last couple of decades. And we're not trying to do what China's doing. That is not what we're trying to do. We're trying to do this in an American way that where we can unleash that uh, opportunity and where we can create those good jobs, Rick, and not do it built on the backs of workers, but rather lifting workers up. And so it does take that, but you've got to be you've, you've got to really have roll pulled over your eyes to believe that somehow 
it's just you know we can't we can't compete because the market says we can't compete that's not that's not what this is at all preach the good word my brother uh, and there's something i'm hoping joe biden's paying attention to and get out there and do some evangelizing and spreading the good word scott appreciate the time man of course rick thanks so much for having me on appreciate it our good friend scott paul want to hear your thoughts Email me, rick at the ricksmithshow.com. Uh, I got to tell you, I, I'm hoping he gets out there and spreads the good word early and often. Right back. Stick around. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So I came across some new, some new angering data. If you need something to get upset about, this, this might be helpful. Um, and I look, I know my right-wing friends, they, they need a steady diet of outrage candy. If you're going to be outraged, this, oh, put your listening ears on for this one. Our good friends over at the Americans for Tax Fairness, they've got some new, uh, some new analysis of Federal Reserve data. And guess what? It's no longer the 99% versus the 1%. It's all of us, like 320-some million people uh, against, well, 64,000. That's like 0.05%. It's a very small amount. But these are the folks, these are the folks who, according to the data, um, they've got one out of every $6 in the nation that's going uh, untaxed through unrealized capital gains. And you go, well, that's that. What, 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 what is that? Well, here to ask, what is that? And maybe figure out what we should be doing about it. I've asked Will Rice to come with, talk with us. Will is a policy consultant with the good folks over at Americans for Tax Fairness. If you want to check out their website, americansfortaxfairness.org. Will, thanks for taking time for us. Thank you for having me on again, Rick. So walk me through this thing, because I'm, I'm seeing this, this, this study, you guys, this research you guys have put out, this new data from the Federal Reserve that says, hey, uh, you've got all this money in unrealized capital gains, $8.5 trillion, and this very small amount, people, basically a football stadium full of people who, have, uh, uh, who are benefiting from this. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, just some definitions. Um, a capital gain is just... Um, the value of something over what you paid for it. So if you paid $100 for something and it's now worth $200, that's a $100 capital gain. Um, unrealized capital gains means you haven't sold it yet. So you bought it for 100, it's worth 200, you're not selling it yet, you're holding on to it. That's called an unrealized capital gain. Now, um, most people might think, well, if you didn't sell it, you don't have any cash, and so how does that help you? That's where the difference between normal people and the ultra rich comes in. Because if you have, if you're a billionaire or what we call a centimillionaire, someone worth at least a hundred million dollars, that increase in your, in, in your wealth, those unrealized capital gains, they keep piling up year after year. 
you can benefit from those gains without selling any of your assets, without paying any taxes on it. And how do you do that? Bankers are very happy to make you short, to make you low cost loans based on your rising fortune. Um, and this isn't just a lefty saying this. There's a well-known phrase on Wall Street called buy, borrow, die. And we'll get to the die part later. But the first part is you buy stocks, you let them go up, and then you borrow against them. And you're, the interest you're paying on those loans is just a fraction of what you would pay in taxes if you actually sold those, those assets. So we have all of this, this accumulation of wealth that they never have to tap into, and they're borrowing against this, and then being able to, I assume, write all that interest off? Well, individuals can't write off interest payments like that. But again, it's the, the savings, even though an important point is if you do sell it, if you do sell uh, some of these assets that have gone up, and by assets, I mean stocks, mutual funds, private businesses, real estate, um, you're going to pay a lower tax rate than if you made the equivalent amount of money from wages. Right. So that's already a benefit you get from being living off money rather than your work. But if you do sell it, you're going to pay... Uh, if these people would pay like something over 20%, almost 25%. But the interest rates they're paying on their loans, you know, are in the single digits. So so they're always better off rolling these loans over, paying a little bit of interest on them, and not touching these these uh, capital gains, not paying taxes on them. So they're 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 living the high life, not having to, to tip dip into their 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 nest egg or their uh, their actual assets. Uh, the Pretty banks are happy because they're they're getting a churn of interest coming in that they know they've got secured money for. So it's a it's a wealth class basically they're basically a a financial orgy. Uh, they're yeah, making I, out hugely, and and we the working people who go punch a clock every day pay our taxes every single week on every dime we earn. Uh, we're actually paying for them, and this is this is the thing that gets me. Well, because I've this is one of those things that drives me crazy because you hear well you got those lazy working people, you know those lazy people who don't want jobs. Isn't the height of laziness going? I got a boatload of money that's just going to sit there and, and and compound and compound and and I'm I'm never going to do anything except move money from one pocket to the other. I don't know which person's lazy. <laughs> well, I mean, if if your major job of the day is just checking your bank account to see how much has gone up versus uh, an emergency room nurse or a power line worker who goes out in the middle of a thunderstorm, I think it's pretty clear to see who has the easier life. And um, I just I said I was going to get back to the third part of that three part um, um, uh, model for life among the ultra rich. Die refers to the fact that um, when you're your children, your lucky children inherit all of these gains, all of this money that's been made by the stock market going up. Um, for tax purposes, those gains disappear. And 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 so it, it's never taxed. In other words, if you bought something for $100, it went up to $500. If you sold it, you owe a tax on that difference, which is $400. If you die and your, and your kids, your heirs, immediately take that asset and sell it for $500. They don't owe any taxes. It's as if that that rise, that run up in value never happened. It's called stepped up basis. And it's one of the biggest, it's hard to choose sometimes. It's one of the biggest loopholes that benefit the wealthy uh, in the whole tax code. Now, the reason for it, you might wonder, well, how did this ever start? It, it, it started before there were electronic records 
you know, your grandfather might have bought 100 shares of General Motors in 1920 and you inherited in 1965 and he just scratched on the back of an envelope how much he paid for it. You don't know. But nowadays, um, uh, records of what you pay for stuff are centralized. They're computerized. There's no longer any practical reason why we have to pretend as though we don't know what the original price of this asset was. It's purely a giveaway at this point. Wow. I, and, you know, because immediately my mind's going, well, you know, this is the wonders of getting rid of the death, ta the dreaded death tax. But this is something completely different than the inheritance tax. This is this is something that they they, they fought for, lobbied for, that they got in there uh, that benefits them. Wow. I, I, I didn't I didn't realize it was that bad. No, I mean, yes, it's important to, to make a distinction between there still is the proper the appropriate title for it is the estate tax. There's no such thing as the death tax in the in the federal tax code. That that's a piece of propaganda that the other side is 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 happy to use. But it, it, the estate tax is not is not a tax on your dying. It's a tax on being an incredibly wealthy heir is is what's being taxed there. So um that still is in place, although it's been weakened tremendously over the last few decades. Um right now uh a couple can have I think it's up to like $23 million in assets uh, and not pay a penny. Their heirs don't pay a penny in estate tax on, on any of that. Yeah. Um, for the people we're talking about, um, they would owe an estate tax on what all their stuff is worth, assuming they haven't put it into special trusts and taken all sorts of other precautions to try to guard against paying the estate tax. You've got the estate tax, which is on what's all your stuff worth. There's the capital gains tax and how much has it gone up since you bought it. And the super rich are able to base are able to completely avoid one of those and effectively avoid the other. It's really remarkable when you think about just how badly our tax code is rigged. And look, you know, working people, you know, look, I don't like paying taxes any more than I have to. I understand it's the price of admission to, to be part of society. It's how we fund our roads, our bridges, our education system. It's how we fund our military. It's how we do the things collectively that we can't do individually. But when I see a, a, you know, a small group of people who seem to have all of the wealth and power being able to be well moved away and not have to not have to contribute, even though we keep hearing, Will, that they pay all the taxes. You know, I was listening to Elon Musk telling me how much how they pay all the taxes. And yet I see these gimmicks and these schemes that keep popping up and I'm going where? Yeah, well, it's, it's an important point to make is that. This, the tax code we have now does not effectively tax the, tax the super wealthy. Um, when they say rich people or wealthier people pay a lot of the taxes, um, there's some truth in that. If, if you're someone who makes a really, really good salary, if you're, if you're, like I say, stupid enough to actually make your money by working rather than just by having a bunch of money, um, you're going to pay, you're going to pay a, a pretty good tax rate, at least on the federal level, the state and local level, poorer people actually pay a bigger share of their of their of their income than richer people do. But at the federal level, on wage income, um, you 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 the richer people do do pay more. Although, again, if you take into account uh, Social Security and other payroll taxes, then it's not as much. But what we're talking about is not people not like a wealthy lawyer or doctor who makes a lot of money from their job. We're talking about people who live exclusively off of their money. And we, this structurally, our system does not tax that kind of income well at all. And that's where all the money is. So you're looking at the our billionaire class who, you know, you know, they don't sell ever sell their stocks. They just live off the loans that come with them. So the question then becomes, 
how do we make it more fair? How do we make it to where you can't, you know, or maybe we, we close some of these loopholes. How do we make it, how do we move in a direction that, that, that people are paying, you know, a, a share of, of tax? Uh, I've always said, look, I mean, you know, everyone, I've got people who say, well, we should have a flat tax. I'm going, no, I'm, I'm a firm believer in the bigger your shoulders, the more water you should carry. The more our society has given you, the more responsibility you have to this society to make sure it functions because you mm-hmm. take more from it. So for me, the idea of having these 64,000 people who I, I, I guarantee use our infrastructure, our court system, our patent laws, all, all of that stuff, much more than the little radio show host. Um, I think they should be paying more than I do. I think they should, too. And in fact, there are plans to try to do that. Both President Biden and the chairman of the tax writing committee in the United States Senate have put forward plans that would tax these wealth gains, these unrealized capital gains of the super wealthy um, every year, just like workers pay on their paychecks every year. Uh, And uh, they raise a lot of money. That could be used to lower costs for working families for things like childcare and healthcare and housing. And they would also slightly narrow that huge wealth gap um, that I think is very dangerous in a democracy. I think it destabilizes a society. I think it endangers our democracy because billionaires spend a lot of money on campaigns. So uh, uh, there is a plan. There are, in fact, two plans. They've both int- been introduced in Congress and um, they don't stand a lot of a uh, uh, chance right now because uh, Republicans um, don't want billionaires or centimillionaires or anyone else very wealthy actually paying what they what they their fair share for, like you say, for the the use of our common goods and services. But how come we're not making this case to the average American? Look, you know, I listen to to right wing outrage radio and i listen to some of my my conservative friends and you know they, they all have this dream that you know we're all going to be uh, elon musk at some point we're going to all be able to take advantage of of this and the reality is the vast vast majority of us are never going to be anywhere close to to this kind of wealth uh, but what do you say to the person who goes look you know i might get there someday will you know and i want to make sure that i can pass a little something little something onto the heirs You'll still do really, really well. It'll still be a fine thing to be a billionaire, even with all of these reforms. I mean, the estate tax, um, it doesn't it, it, it only starts to tax you over that 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 exemption amount. So right now it's twenty three million dollars. Let's say we moved it, it. Then that's much higher than it ever used to be. If we move that down to ten million dollars, well, you still be able to pay pass along ten million dollars tax free to your kids. And you'd only be paying some amount of tax on the amount over that. Uh, as for these special taxes on on wealth gains, on unrealized capital gains, that would only apply to people uh, who make over who who are worth over a hundred million dollars. So yeah, I mean, we all wish that we could play center field for the Yankees or center for the Los Angeles Lakers or something. It's not likely to happen, and it's not likely that we're going to become billionaires either. So it makes much more sense to say, what's a fair thing for these people who? However hard they've worked, you have to admit they've kind of won the the lottery of life. I mean, because um, I don't think any of these billionaires uh, work a billion times harder than another uh, uh, American. Um, They're not a billion times smarter. They're not a billion times more virtuous. So they've worked hard in many cases, except for the ones who've inherited, of course. There's a whole clan of, of Waltons who inherited Walmart money. But the ones who 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 have built this up um, they're still, and if you join them, you'll still have a pretty nice life, but you're just going to be contributing more to everyone else 
who's also working hard and just hasn't won that golden lottery ticket. Yeah. Last question I've got for you on this then, because, you know, the other frame that I get from people, well, we can't raise taxes uh, because the government just doesn't spend it as efficiently as the individual does. And we need it. We need. In fact, you know, I saw this this uh, this story not too long ago that we should be grateful for our billionaires because they're capable of doing things. Uh, that government can't do because they're they're again smarter, better, more efficient, more productive. All all those those things. Uh, any any response to that? Yeah, it's 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 really nonsense because billionaires, no smart business person ever ventures into anything hard or risky without the government going first. You go all back to the 19th century; it was the government giving away free land that allowed uh, the railroads to to crisscross the country with tracks. Elon Musk is going trying to go out to space now. No one was going to start that until NASA did it in the 60s. It always starts with collective effort, with the government going first, and then businesses pile on to try to make some money out of it. So it's just wrong, the idea that if we just didn't tax these people at all, and we hardly do tax them, that somehow they would lead us all to a Shangri-La where they're making all the right decisions for us. I don't think most of us want an individual making decisions for us in terms of what we spend money on and what we don't spend money on. I think that should be a collective democratic uh, uh, process. I'm right there with you, Will. I appreciate the time, as always. Good information, good stuff. Hope folks will check out the website, americansfortaxfairness.org, where you can take a look at their most recent uh, bit of research on this. It's it's mind-blowing. Uh, but, Will, I appreciate the time, man. Thank you very much. Uh, Will Rice, policy consultant there at Americans for Tax Fairness. want to hear your thoughts. Email me, rick at com. Right back after this. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1941. That was the day that President Franklin Delano Roosevelt gave a speech that would become one of the defining moments of his presidency. The world was embroiled in the Second World War. Debates raged about whether the United States should enter the conflict. At this critical time, Roosevelt delivered his State of the Union address. It became known as the Four Freedom Speech. In it, President Roosevelt proposed four fundamental freedoms that should be shared by everyone in the world. They included the freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and the freedom from fear. Freedom of speech and freedom of worship had long been enshrined in the United States Constitution. But by declaring that people deserved freedom from want and fear, Roosevelt was charting new ground. It was this belief that undergirded his New Deal policies aimed at helping those devastated by the Great Depression. In his speech, Roosevelt declared that there were basic expectations by the people of the United States. They included jobs for those who can work, security for those who need it, the ending of special privilege for the few, the preservation of civil liberties for all, the enjoyment of the fruits of scientific progress in a wider and constantly rising standard of living. He then 
then called for an increase in pensions, unemployment insurance, and access to medical care and jobs. In 1943, after the United States had entered the war, the Saturday Evening Post published a series of paintings by Norman Rockwell portraying each of the four freedoms outlined in the speech. The paintings by the popular artist helped to spread the idea of the freedoms to the American public. It's worth asking how far we've come in realizing these four freedoms today. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So, I got to tell you, I'm hoping that the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, re- repurposes the, uh, the stock buyback disclosure rule. Uh, because you look at the fact of the matter, corporate America, much like our very wealthy, they've been lining their pockets for decades. And, you know, the, the idea of the, this practice of buying back stocks to pump up the share price, to pump up CEO pay, um, that really began to, to explode in the 2010s. And, you know, since then, you've seen these companies buy back somewhere in the, in the $6 trillion market uh, of stocks being bought back in the open market. And, and look, big companies like Norfolk Southern, for instance, you know, the people who brought us the train derailment and the, uh, the, all the stuff going on in East Palestine. Uh, they spent in 2021 and 2022 $6.5 billion on stock buybacks. Maybe could have used that on, oh, I don't know, you know, some, some things to make safe, safer trains. I don't know, just throwing it out there. I uh, look at Bed Bath & Beyond. They bought back $11.8 billion in their stocks in recent years. And they only ended up being, what was it, over $5 billion in debt? Um, that, well, sorry, we, we, we can't operate anymore. 14,000 workers lose their jobs. And Boeing. Boeing's another one of these examples. In the 2010s, Boeing spent more than $43 billion on stock buybacks. And and here's the thing. This is the part that gets me. This is a wildly profitable company. Boeing was an incredibly profitable, still is, uh, worth, what was it, $128 billion? And yet somehow, over the, the, the first five years of Trump's tax scheme, paid zero income tax. In fact, even got money back. We're paying them while they're buying their shares back, while they're you know stocking up, you know stocking up on on you know paying CEOs more, paying their their shareholders more. While well, you got things flying off of planes. I mean, stop and think about the reality. Boeing, a wildly wildly profitable company. Zero federal income tax from 2018 to 2022. Because, well, they claim they weren't profitable. <laughs> they claim. Uh, but somehow they could pay their board of directors and their executives over $300 million. The CEO, $100 million. And we, we continue to pay them. Now, understand, they make huge money off of we, the taxpayers. In fact, uh, what was it? They got the Pentagon contracts, something about $122 billion makes up about a third of their revenue. And what do they do? Well, they spend millions of dollars lobbying Congress for more. And look, I look at Boeing, and Boeing screwed up ma- massively 
by going to South Carolina because hey, we're gonna go, we're gonna run away from the people who built us uh, into an extraordinary company. We're gonna run away from those machinists and those those union workers out in Washington State to go to non-union South Carolina where we can we can cheat we can cheat workers out of wages. And you got Nikki Haley who sat on their board was more than happy as governor to bring them in because she wears pointy toes. She wears pointy toe shoes so she can kick those unions. It's crazy where we are. It's crazy economically how we've allowed corporate America and the very wealthy to get away with paying paying into the tax system and and how easily we are how easily we are being divided. I mean that's that's the other part in this. Just how crazy society has gotten. Yeah, I'm looking at this Rolling Stones article. And, and I've been saying for a long time, we're careening towards Christian Sharia law. Uh, it's coming. So on one hand, you're going to have the wildly wealthy lining their pockets and living in their gated communities away from all of the, the chaos that their money is creating. And then we're going to have, well, the fun and the entertainment. And I look at this newly minted Oklahoma state senator. I got to tell you, you know, just... Not a surprise. A fundamentalist preacher turns state senator, but doesn't see any any uh, division between the two roles. No, no invisible wall. No wall of separation. You know, we used to believe there was a, a separation between church and state. Oh no, 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 not Dusty Devers. No, uh, Dusty thinks uh, that his his all in line. And his job is uh, to work for government to promote what's good in accordance to the will of God. And he doesn't say which God, but we know which one he means. His God. Never mind yours or anyone else's. Uh, and he has now come out. He's, he's anti-porn. He uh, wants to outlaw porn. Uh, he wants to end what he calls the abortion holocaust. So none of that. Uh, and abolish no-fault divorce. So women, once you get married, you're stuck. And, and look, I look at this guy and I'm going, oh, who would vote for this? And sadly, people in Elgin, uh, Oklahoma. Uh, the fire and brimstone, the black and white thinking scares me. This idea that his, you know, he believes it's our job to protect the innocent and punish and terrorize the evildoers. Not just hold account, but to punish and terrorize. And his first, his first bill on the docket was uh, obviously the, the end of, of abortion and allow for the prosecution of, of mothers of, of, the, of the unborn children. Uh, this, is, this is his words. Um, this means if a woman gets an abortion, you're going to prison. That's what they want. They want punishment. They want to publicly shame people who get divorced. No more at fault, no more, no more, not, no, no fault divorce. And if you're at fault, if it's your fault, we're going to shake. We're going to put it in the newspaper, evidently. But my favorite is, is his, his anti-porn stance. Because when you read through, oh man, you read through his bill. Wow. This is a guy who spends a lot of time thinking about porn. This is a guy who's really, his definition of what, what porn is. And the 10 categories. And uh, this is a guy I think who spent a lot of time. A lot of time. And not surprising, because look, uh, the, the 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 notches in the Bible belt, 
the, the Oklahomas of the world, the Utahs, the Mississippis, the Alabamas, those states, much higher porn co- consumption than any of the other any of the other states. In fact, red states, really high consumption of porn. Blue states, not so much. And and look, everyone does. Everyone looks at this, but the red states, the people who are repressive, the people who are the ones who are you know we we need to we need to go after these people. Oddly enough, they're the ones who spend the most money, and that's that's the weird part about this. Uh, I gotta wonder, and as I'm reading through this guy's this guy's you know background, I'm going, what did this guy do in the past that made him this kind of zealot? What is it that he did? You know, what kind of? Because I've said before, you know, people who are you know the the do-gooders, the the uh, the reformed alcoholics, the kind of lives lives that they led before. Um, there's a, there's a lot there. I gotta wonder, gotta wonder what skeletons are in the Deaver's closet. But I'll tell you, frightening times, and people like this we should not allow near the the halls of power. Just my thought. Want to hear yours? Email me Rick at the RickSmithShow.com. Want to hear what you think, what you know? Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you back here next time. You've been listening to The Rick Smith Show. Email Rick at rick at thericksmithshow.com. Until next time, this has been The Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.